You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 30th of November. And as COP28 kicks off in Dubai, we had everything you needed to know about those crunch climate change talks. There's dozens of world leaders that have flown into the country. In fact, while we were on air virtually, the president of Nigeria, Guinea-Bissau, Togo, Cote d'Ivoire and Guyana all arrived in the country. Plus the Lebanese prime minister and Pakistan's interim prime minister. So, yep, we're definitely going to have a lot of blah, blah, blah in the country over the next few days to Queen of Phrase from Greta Thunberg. But will that translate into action? We heard the hopes and fears of youth campaigners from around the world. And we also heard from COP president-designate Dr. Sultan al-Jaba. Meanwhile, there is a particularly virulent strain of flu going around at the moment. So how can you avoid catching it? We spoke to Kate Hoffman, who is Chief Nursing Officer at NMC Healthcare. And everyone is coming up with creative ideas to promote the idea of climate action. But can you imagine climbing the Burj Khalifa to raise awareness? Well, producer Jennifer Crichton spoke to two men who have done exactly that. Alain Robert, who is known as the French Spiderman, and his daredevil protégé, urban climber Alexis Lando. And Chris McCarty brought us up to date with all the latest sports news. Welcome back to the show. Good to have you with us this Thursday morning. And I think it's fair to say it's a pretty important Thursday for the UAE because it has been long awaited and I think it's fair to say much fated. But finally, COP28 starts in Dubai today. And despite the frankly slightly dry subject matter, it is impossible or almost impossible to underestimate the importance of the UN's climate change conference. We all know that this COP is not an ordinary COP. We know that this COP comes at an inflection point of the world. In fact, it is our view and our belief that this is the most consequential COP after or since, uh, since Paris. That is Dr. Sultan al-Jaba. He is COP28's president-designate, outlining just how crucial this event is. Now, I'm joined in the studio by producer Jennifer Crichton, who's been keeping a close eye on the developments, including a, a really, in particular, there was a big press conference that took place yesterday when many of the key figures in this COP28 uh, basically sat down and took questions from the press. Now, world leaders keep telling us, Jen, the need for urgent action. But will this be the event that finally sees all those 30 years of blah, 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 as Greta Thunberg famously described it, translated into a solid agreement to cut emissions. Jen, what did they say at this press conference yesterday? Most certainly Dr Al-Jaber would hope that that would be the case. He was joined by a sea of officials locally. We're going to be hearing from a number of them throughout the show. But that press conference really was about focusing attention on what they are hoping to achieve here in the next 10 days or so. And Dr Al-Jaber said that leaders must reduce the gap between ambition and action. As you all know, we are getting ready to receive more than 165 heads of states and heads of governments. And we are very ready to host 
the representatives from across all uh, sectors, industries, government, civil society, NGOs, indigenous peoples, young people. And I must say that we are very proud of the fact that we have been able to attract the attention required and to allow for this to become a true convening point for all powers from all over the world to address this one pressing issue. And I think it's fair to say that both international and local enthusiasm for the event does seem to be running pretty high, doesn't it? Absolutely. We've seen over 97,000 delegates register for the event. Now, that is far more than was predicted. We were expecting around 70,000 people. And what's more, as we've been talking about over the last week or so, anyone here can register for tickets to the Green Zone. And the UAE is perhaps unique in COP history in that the Green and Blue Zones are sited in the same place in Expo City. It means the public can get really up close and personal with the action. And more than 400,000 people have now registered for tickets to that green zone, which opens to the public from today. Now, these climate conferences happen every year, but the UN has deemed that this COP will be the one where every country should make publicly declared commitments to dramatically reduce their emissions. And it's fair to say that Dr Sultan is aware of the pressure that creates. We all know What makes also this COP different is the fact that we have been interested to conduct the first ever global stock take. And that is the global report card and the framework for deciding our way forward. And I promise I am putting a lot of pressure on every single party and on every single stakeholders. What I want is the delivery of the highest ambition global stock take decision. The global stock take. Now, that is very critical to where the UAE wants to take these talks, isn't it? Yeah. Now, the belief is very much that by making nations effectively show their workings, it becomes that much harder to fudge the picture when it comes to how much progress has been made so far and how much is still to be done. Now, dozens of world leaders are flying into the country to delve into those records. In fact, the presidents of, deep breath, Nigeria, Guinea-Bissau, Toga, Cuba, the Côte d'Ivoire and Guyana have all arrived in the last couple of hours alone, plus the Lebanese PM, Pakistan's interim PM and the USA's special presidential climate envoy, John Kerry. And in that regard, Dr. Sultan has been clear that while the UAE is leading this year's talks, progress will be made through cooperation and not by any one party dominating proceedings. Time has come for us to accept some realities And time has come for us to come to terms with some facts. And time has come for us to unite and to act and to deliver against this global challenge. And you all know, no single presidency, no single country can do this this on its own. I am calling on all parties and all stakeholders to work with us, to support us, and to engage openly in order for us to be able to deliver this unprecedented outcome that we all aim to achieve by the end of COP. Now, aside from that stock take, what else are talks at this summit expected to focus on? What are actually going to be, you know, the pillars of the conversations there? Well, one of the key things that we're expecting to be 
really critical in these talks is that contentious loss and damage fund. We've seen a lot of talks about that in recent years, but it's really critical now that that comes into operation. So that is going to be something key to focus on. On the same side as that, we're going to see a lot of talks about scaling up climate finance. We expect to see a lot of discussion about the future of fossil fuels and the phase out to greener power sources. We're also going to be looking a lot, I suspect, at bolstering food systems to cope with a warming world, ending deforestation and examining the impact of climate crisis on our health, which is actually a specific focus that is a first for COP in the UAE. That has not had a specific focus at any previous COP conference until this year. Now, of course, by hosting these talks, the UAE has found itself very much under the world's spotlight. It's also made the city very busy, hasn't it? Ultimately, we were talking about this on the programme yesterday. Sheikh Zayed Road is going to be closed in the Abu Dhabi direction all the way from the World Trade Centre between 7am and 10pm over that's uh, tomorrow, Saturday and Sunday. So what type of impact are we sort of seeing on Dubai, on the UAE as a result of these talks? I mean, we are going to be seeing a lot of road restrictions, as you say, Sheikhside Road and a number of roads around Expo City as well being closed between 7am and 11am on those three days that you spoke about. There's going to be a lot of roads restrictions and we are expecting to see some pretty busy metro trains, public transport's going to be packed. There's also obviously been a surge in hotel bookings, so I wouldn't be looking to get a weekend locally staycationing anytime soon. Data from analytics provider CoStar shows that hotel occupancy is at more than 60% over the first three days of the summit, which eclipses New Year's Eve, which is normally the busiest night in the city. And of course, as you mentioned, we are very much under the world spotlight at the moment. So to that end, finally, we also saw Dr Jabber address claims made in the UK media this week, strongly denying suggestions that oil and gas business had been discussed in COP meetings. These allegations are false, not true, incorrect, and not accurate. And it's an attempt to undermine the work of the COP28 presidency. Do you think the UAE will need the COP or the COP presidency to go and establish business deals or commercial relationships? I promise you, Never ever did I see these token points that they refer to or that I ever even used such token points in my discussions. Every meeting I have conducted with every government or any other stakeholder has always been centered around one thing and one thing only, and that is my COP28 agenda. That is Dr. Sultan Al-Jabba. He is, of course, COP28 president-designate, uh, speaking there at a press conference that he held yesterday to launch the start of the COP28 talks. As you can imagine, we will have full coverage of those talks right here on the agenda, right here on Dubai Eye 103.8. We have a huge number of people who are going to be heading down to COP28 to make sure that we get each and every 
story, each and every, each and every permutation of, of the conversations that are going to be going on there. In fact, here on the agenda and also on the Business Breakfast, we are going to be broadcasting from our studio in the exclusive Blue Zone every single day. There are two zones, as Jen mentioned a little earlier. There's the Green Zone, which is where the public are allowed and where all sorts of private companies and climate activists, they base themselves there. And then there is the Blue Zone, where all the politicians are, where all the decision makers are and where we will be as well. So you can imagine how excited we are as journalists to know that there are literally topping 192 world leaders and their delegates coming into the country. Uh, so the opportunities to catch the the ears, to catch the words of some very, very important people over the next two weeks are um, are very exciting indeed for us. Basically, there's, there's going to be a chance for us to talk to a lot of very important people over the next few days. And obviously, that means we'll have the opportunity to bring the words of a lot of very important people to you on the radio. Uh, so make sure you keep it locked on Dubai Eye 103.8 over the next couple of weeks. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. Now, we hear a lot about the impact of climate change on the young and the importance of including them in the conversation about climate action. But now researchers are suggesting that our focus should also fall on the elderly and their needs because a new study shows urgent intervention is required to protect older people from the effects of, for example, extreme weather. Now, the report is titled Healthy Ageing in a Changing Climate and it emphasises the significant challenges faced by older people. Earlier, I spoke to the study lead. His name is Ryan Woolrich. He's a professor of ageing and urban studies and director of the Urban Institute at Heriot Watt University in the UK. And he told me a bit more about their findings. Within our study, we looked at the impacts of extreme heat, flooding, particularly in coastal regions and storms, which are becoming more frequent. And we found that it's having an impact on the, first of all, the mortality of older people. So if we looked at the evidence from previous extreme weather events, unnecessary deaths, they all seem to accumulate in the over 60 age group. But it's also impacted on the physical and mental well-being of older people, particularly those who are more vulnerable. So displacement from homes and communities were one of the negative impacts of extreme weather, particularly those living with pre-existing conditions. I think there has been, and you made an important point there about the narrative of younger people being the brunt of climate change impacts. And we found that often the narrative of older people is one that they're a cause of climate change. And we found that they were doing some very active roles within their local communities, particularly around climate change interventions. So it's to challenge really that perception that older people are causes of climate change and look at older people in aging populations as more of a demographic dividend and a, an opportunity in terms of including their voice more in the climate change discussions. What is it about the extreme weather that's particularly bad for their health? The single biggest impact was social isolation. So we found that during extreme weather events, older people were less likely to leave the home. They found that maintaining those social networks and connections during extreme weather events was particularly impacted. And more broadly was the delivery of healthcare supports for an ageing population. So we found that people during extreme weather all the people who needed care at home couldn't get the supports they need because formal carers couldn't get access to all the people 
in particular. So it impacted right across the health and well-being spectrums. And that led to many experiencing forms of loneliness, um, isolation, loss before, during and after really extreme weather events. So it was often a long term well-being impact. Did you have suggestions of what could be done to ease this burden? Yeah, we looked at various different dimensions around what we're calling age-friendly cities and communities. That's how we can design cities and communities in a way that are climate resilient, but support safety and security and enable positive and fulfilling roles into old age. The first element of that was healthcare. You know, the World Health Organization in a recent report has suggested that a change in climate is the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. Healthcare systems are not currently climate ready. We felt, and certainly a priority for older people, was practical health supports and guidance for older people, information and awareness about how climate change is impacting on older people in specific conditions. And that goes right through to training healthcare professionals on the impact of climate change and what to look out for when they're delivering care for older people. That that was the first one, healthcare. The second one was how do we get our physical infrastructure right? And by physical infrastructure, we're talking about outdoor spaces, indoor spaces, homes, communities, how we can continue to deliver climate resilient transport interventions, for example, that enable older people to get around during extreme weather events. Within the built environment, that can be things like cooling stations, transport nodes and bus shelters, shaded streets different things that we can integrate into our built environment that also have a social impact. So getting people around more and enable them to move around during extreme weather, that supports social connections. It makes sure people are aging well and actively so they can move around and they have walkable communities and that extreme weather isn't necessarily just a period where people are excluded and and living at home. The third one, the, the most important one, I think in many ways, is greater voice and recognition for older people in that climate change debate. I think we forget that those climate change movements in the 1960s and 1970s, older people were at the forefront of them. They are older people today that were young people then, you know. So it's everyone's issue. It's an intergenerational issue. And we're calling for greater intergenerational learning, intergenerational communities. It's not one just of old age. It is about developing inclusive climate change solutions. And part of that is climate literacy. It's about how we can all make better informed choices about the way that we do things on a day-to-day level. Do you think that at the moment, not enough is being done? Do you think that older people are not being included in this conversation? From our research, what we found was that there is not a lack of older people wanting to be involved in the climate change discussions, but an exclusion of their voices in the climate change debate. So more recently, there's a feeling that it's been framed as a you know younger people's movement, that it's sidelined older people's voices in some ways from that debate. And many feel excluded from the development of interventions at a local level. Of course, here in the UAE, we have a young population. So this conversation might not seem as relevant now, but I guess that's going to change, isn't it? You're right. Looking at some of the data around ageing populations in the UAE, we found that, well, in 2016, only 1% of the UAE population was over the age of 60. 
by 2050, this figure is predicted to reach 2 million or 16% of the country's population. So that demographic shift is happening and climate change is happening at the same time. And it's going to create, we think, significant challenges for society and how we respond to that, you know, will be crucial. Really fascinating to hear of that study. And if you are a slightly older person, listen to this and you agree or indeed disagree, we'd love to hear from you. Huge thanks today to Ryan Woolridge. He was study lead of that report and he's the Professor of Ageing and Urban Studies at Heriot Watt University in the United Kingdom. Hello there and welcome back to your Agenda programme. Right, it has been long awaited and much fated. But finally, COP28 does indeed start in Dubai today. And despite what is frankly some quite dry subject matter, it is almost impossible to underestimate the importance of this, the UN's Climate Change Conference, not least for the world's young people. Now, producer Jennifer Crichton has been looking into just why this conference is being seen as a critical turning point specifically for youth activism and joins me now in the studio. Jen, tell me, why is this COP so important? Why is it different to the events that happen every single other year? Like we had COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, we had COP26 in Glasgow. What's different about this one? Well, essentially it's because young people, and this is surprising, are actually getting involved at a structural level for the first time ever. Now, it isn't something that's happened before. As Greta Thunberg famously pointed out, poo-pooing COP's legacy for young people so far. Take a listen. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Ouch. Every time I hear that, ouch. It was dismissed, of course, by many at the time, that sort of bunny-hugging phrase. But she had a point, because until now, the world's young people have not had a meaningful seat at the COP table. Now, this is Her Excellency Shama al-Mazrui. She is the UAE's Minister of State for Youth Affairs. And she was speaking yesterday about why the UAE has been so determined to do things differently. Young people are powerful. They're entrepreneurs, they're students, they're leading green technology, and the list goes on. But this power has not been harnessed to its full potential. COP has happened 27 times. Yet, young people still face significant barriers and challenges. And let me start with four of them. One, lack of access. Two, young people from small island developing states and least developing countries and climate vulnerable communities are severely underrepresented. Coming to COP costs over $4,500. How can majority of young people afford this? Three, lack of engagement platforms. Young people don't have a platform to voice their concerns. There's no meaningful route where their voice can translate to policymaking. Fourth, is the insufficient capacity building. So one of the major climate barriers uh, to COP for young people was the lack of climate education. They say we come not knowing how the negotiations work, we're wandering around not knowing what to do or how to contribute meaningfully. So the lack of capacity building is critical. Now this is the reason the United Arab Emirates and the uh, CPD decided to create a youth climate champion role. 
a role that is placed within the presidency team to one, ensure meaningful participation and representation of young people in international climate decision making, two, relay the voice of youth directly to the presidency, three, mobilize substantive input and outcomes from COP. This is our ambition. Okay, so what does the introduction of that role actually mean? Because I heard a lot of words there, but does that actually translate into young people having a say? Yes. So in effect, what it means is that instead of young people being relegated to a sidelines event and speaking for themselves to themselves, as has happened in the past, they have now been integrated throughout the entire COP process from planning until now. And that means that for the first time, a COP event under 35s will have a voice in every aspect of the debate rather than solely on sidebar discussions, which have been deemed youth topics. And as Minister Almas-Rui noted, where young people have been in attendance in the past, they've largely come from more affluent countries in the global north, with the USA being the most keenly represented. But if this COP is to be truly representative and intersectional, she said, it's critical that previously underrepresented voices are heard. So last night I spoke to some of those young people who are coming to COP this year. All of them are members of Yungo, that's the official children and youth constituency to the UNFCCC. Lara Weidgenat is from Brazil and she says young people have already been actively engaging with climate issues long before being invited to the table. We have a critical perspective that needs to be taken into the decision making and into the outcomes and climate action. Young people are not just the future and will be most impacted by the climate crisis, but are already taking action against climate change around the world, including in international policy and in the UNFCCC. It is not just my hope, but a necessity that young voices are heard at this UN climate summit. Now, Ryan Kassem is from Lebanon and will be in Dubai this week. He told me the spotlight this particular COP is putting on just how far off track many global nations are in their net zero commitments makes it more critical than ever that those young people's voices are heard. Especially that this COP is a stock-taking moment and that it's midway between the Paris Agreement and the 2030 SDG Agenda And given that data shows that we're not on track to meet the SDG 2030 agenda, I think youth are one of the stakeholders that can really hold governments accountable towards meeting the Paris Agreement. Now, we were hearing about how those global South countries have been previously underrepresented and we're seeing some good evidence that this year will go some way to rectifying that picture. Tamsir Sala is from The Gambia and told me he's hopeful that young people's activism in this space will now finally be formally recognised. Climate change leaves no one behind. So are the young people. We all have seen how young people have been actively involved into climate change advocacy. And COP28 is a moment where young people will see themselves part of the process. And it's a moment where young people can be appreciated. And young people are actually optimistic that decisions that are to be taken will reflect the needs and aspirations of young people. Did you also hear from young people in the MENA region, in the the Middle East, North Africa region? Absolutely. And it might perhaps be partly geographical, but Morocco is turning in a particularly large youth contingent this year. Now, among those representing that country is Amfar Umnia, who critically represents Yungo's healthcare working group. Now, this COP is the first ever to have a specific focus on the intersection of climate change and health. And she says ensuring that young people are heard on that issue is particularly key. 
This cup is very important for us as a house community because it holds the first ever health day and climate and health ministerial, which send a profound meaning about the engagement of the COP28 presidency on putting health agenda forward, but also encouraging other member states to act on adding it on their national adaptation plans. As youth, our role is very big. First, we are going to be the first messengers alongside with other health professionals, but also we need to remind that children, youth, and women, and indigenous people are one of the most vulnerable categories that need to be prioritized when making decisions. Now, also part of that Moroccan delegation is Huda Admu. She told me that young people care deeply about the world they're going to inherit. 2030 is around the corner, and we as youth do care about what the planet will look like seven years from now. We need to make sure, as young leaders, with our advocacy and actions, that we are moving towards the achievement of all agendas set before, and that the planet in the next 50 years will be livable for us and for the next generations. We believe that this COP should be about tangible actions. Some very eloquent young people involved this year, and we are going to be seeing thousands of them taking part, in fact, in this COP. But I'm going to give the last word to Morocco's Aya Munir. Now, she was brilliant in helping me make contact with all of the young people we've heard from this morning. And she told me why this moment marks a turning point for young people's engagement in the climate conversation. Our generation is innovative, passionate and ready for action. We want to see policies that reflect our dreams for a sustainable world. We want to ensure that our hopes resonate in every negotiation room. It's time to demand accountability, sustainable practices and a commitment to the planet. Together, we are the force that propels change. At this COP, we will show up, speak up and let the world know that the youth is united for a better tomorrow. Really amazing there to hear from so many of those uh, young voices there from around the, the global south, effectively, uh, and, and quite rare, I think, to get those voices on the radio. Too often, uh, we frankly have white men talking yes. about the climate crisis. And uh, I think too often it's become clear that those white men and women have, have so far failed to make any change at all, uh, as we have learnt from the global stock take. And with 79,000 mostly adult delegates flying in for this conference, it is really wonderful to hear those voices of the passionate young campaigners who, of course, in many situations can't afford to make the journey here and, and fear that their voices won't be heard. That's it. And as we heard, Shama Alma, Rui saying it has previously been incredibly inaccessible for young people in part because of that cost of attending. So it's really to the UAE's credit that they've gone so far to make sure that so many young people are in attendance. Uh, It's fair to say that another voice that we're not necessarily hearing a great deal on the radio is the voice of the cynics. And I have just had a message from someone who definitely is a little bit of a cynic. It says, anonymous, please. Um, This person says, give me a break. How is any of this attention to young people more than just lip service to make young and old people feel better? We all know what needs to happen, but nobody wants to spend or sacrifice the money or lifestyle changes to do that. Uh, Thank you very much indeed to that person who sent that message through. Like I said, uh, we are very keen to make sure that every single voice gets heard, every single type of voice gets heard here on the agenda and of course in the green zone uh, at COP28 so please do keep your comments coming somebody who's very cross with me writing in well done with the white men comment
said you got both racist and sexist covered at once. I don't think it is possible to be sexist or racist to white men. I'm just I think I think that is one of the uh, the classes of society, one of the sections of society that has done very well in the past few centuries. So I think uh, I think they'll probably manage uh, a couple of comments, barbed comments, to say the least. Or you can WhatsApp me on zero four eight seven one double five double zero. But uh, Jennifer Crichton, thank you very much for that report. Much appreciated. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Now, turning your attention to something non-COP related because medics in the UAE say they're facing a particularly virulent strain of flu this year as people still haven't built up their resistance to viruses post-COVID. Now, vulnerable people and children are particularly at risk from the respiratory illnesses that are currently going around. Some are even needing hospital treatment. Joining me now to give us a little bit more background on this story is Kate Hoffman, who is Chief Nursing Officer for NMC Healthcare. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the line. We really appreciate your time. Tell me, are you seeing more cases than normal or is it just that the cases are a bit more serious? Yes, we are seeing an increase in seasonal flu. Um, the virus is, it likes the cooler months, so um, it's replicating very quickly. Uh, the incubation is about two days, so lots of people are experiencing flu symptoms. Some people obviously haven't had their flu vaccination jab, uh, which could have prevented them getting flu in the first place. But we are seeing an increase um, as the season progresses, yes. I'm going to come back to that vaccination question in a few minutes' time. But what is the flu like this year? What symptoms are people getting? What should people be looking out for? Okay, well, the the symptoms are, as they always have been, fever, cough, you get a sore throat, runny nose. Some people get muscle aches, which are quite debilitating, and they some of our poor patients are left in bed, very uncomfortable. You can get headaches and fatigue, and some... Uh, patients also suffer from diarrhea and vomiting. It's different from co- uh, cold symptoms. This, the cold symptoms are much less um, severe. Uh, flu, the particular issues are fever, muscle aches and fatigue. Um, but for most people, for most healthy people, um, they need to stay at home, have lots of fluids, um, watch a bit of Netflix. Um, but those at high risks, those people who um, have uh, comorbidities if they're pregnant and um, children um, under five, they should have a really low threshold for seeking medical advice. But most of us, um, the symptoms will go between five and seven days. It sounds a lot like COVID, it's, but it's not COVID. It's not a sort of COVID search. No, it's a different virus to COVID. And in fact, the research is showing that COVID symptoms now are less than flu. So, um, yes, it's a separate virus. The cold, the flu, COVID, they're all separate viruses. Now, let's go back to that point you made at the very beginning of our conversation about vaccinations, because I actually decided to do this topic on the radio this morning because I was having a conversation with a few of my friends last night and a surprising number of them were doctors. And uh, one of them said, so, well, have you had your flu jab yet? And we were like, no, no, we're not. We're not high risk. She's like, go and get it. The flu this year is really nasty. So is it too late to have the vaccination or could I go this afternoon? You could go this afternoon. um, Go and get your flu vaccine. It will either stop you getting flu in the first place or certainly reduce the symptoms. Flu, if you've had it, is awful. 
uh, for most of us, we would be at home feeling absolutely grim for a few days. So, uh, yes, go and get your flu vaccine. Get it this afternoon. Um, take the kids most as well. of all take the kids if you're over six months old get your flu vaccine yes but i mean there we go that's very simple great advice and i and indeed if i have time this afternoon that is exactly what i will be doing uh, kate hoffman thank you so much for joining us on the line chief nursing officer there for nmc healthcare uh, and that is off the back of this particularly virulent strain of flu going around. I've heard a lot of people have had it. And the problem is lots of people after they've had the flu, they're then going on to get a secondary infection and then potentially needing antibiotics. So yeah, do stay healthy out there, particularly with so many people flying into the country. You know, there's a lot of new viruses potentially coming into the country as well. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia Tolley here with you till one. And we're looking at the news today. Uh, The big story, obviously, is that COP28 has got underway. But you might be wondering what you as an individual can do to participate. Uh, Maybe you should change how you travel. Maybe you should change your consumption habits when it comes to shopping and even how you eat. But have you considered climbing the Burj Khalifa? (laughs) Probably not. It might sound like a a fairly extreme way to raise awareness of climate issues. But thankfully, the two men who have just scaled the world's tallest building have a little bit of experience under their belts. And as I explained earlier, they did have ropes. Alan Roberts, who is famously known as the French Spider-Man, and his daredevil protégé, urban climber Alexis Lando have completed the challenge as part of Mashrek's Climb to Change Global Initiative. Producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with them and Elaine explained that when he was given this task of a high profile climb, he knew that it was important to get a younger man, a younger climber involved as well. I was sharing uh, this with Alexis who is much, much uh, younger than me. We are having like nearly uh, 40 years different friends. He is really the one that is representing for me the future. And then uh, the idea of linking climate change and the future, it is uh, definitely good, you know, doing something with somebody who is younger than you. And tell me a bit about that link between climate change and your climb. What is it that you are doing with this climb to impact in the climate conversation? Well, we are trying to have uh, an impact on climate change because uh, we are only uh, borrowing this uh, planet for a short period of time. So for sure, it is time that uh, there is more uh, initiative taken by uh, world leaders, but also by individuals like me and uh, Alexis, meaning we need to be uh, conscious that we are destroying the planet and it's not a joke. Yeah, we're happy to send a powerful message. In terms of sending that message, you can't really pick a more high-profile way of doing it. Tell me a bit about the climb itself. What goes into climbing a building like Burj Khalifa? What sort of safety precautions go into a climb like this? Well, actually, it was a free climb, meaning that a free climb means climbing with a rope. I've been wanting to climb skyscraper even since I'm a little kid. And it was a great, great moment. Really intense, uh, really hard climb. Yeah, we made it to the top. But this was in my on my side, like physically, this was the hardest thing I ever done, like in climbing. 
The Burj Khalifa is definitely uh, a very difficult uh, building, and uh, luckily, you know, we could uh, make it uh, with a rope. Uh, otherwise, uh, I guess uh, it would be uh, far too uh, dangerous. Although, you know, I've climbed plenty of buildings uh, very hard, and I did it uh, free solo, but this one is, uh, is the next uh, level. How long did it take you to climb the Burj Khalifa, and what were the conditions like? It took us like uh, nine hours and uh, along the way uh, we started to encounter uh, more difficulties because Mm -hmm. the the structure of the building was uh, burning because no longer in the shade but uh, in the sun and that was sometimes uh, really hard you know um, uh, especially at some point you know me I was a little bit more uh, protected but Alexis was really uh, in the sun and actually uh, his uh, fingers were burning, oh, really yeah. burning. So uh, that was very painful and, uh, you know, he had to fight very hard to make it uh, all the way to the top. Yeah, especially on, on the last parts before um, reaching the spire, uh, some of the metal were really, really hot. So I, I had to you know, push myself mentally and just accepting the pain. Um, for the sake of you know, the climb, so yeah. And the one other difficulty was that on the Burj Khalifa, no windows are the same, so you constantly have to adapt and find like new ways of climbing. Goodness me, I think most people who are listening would think of the challenges of climbing the Burj Khalifa in terms of the height and and how terrifying that would be. I don't think people would necessarily think about that heat aspect. Most people, they get confused. They think that the highest is the hardest, yeah, but it's, okay. uh, it's not the truth. Sometimes some uh, buildings, uh, only a five-story uh, building, may be nearly impossible or yeah. barely possible, meaning uh, that that doesn't mean much. Yeah, the Burj Khalifa is actually not only it's high, but it's actually really hard to climb. I mean, I, I'll remember this day forever. And how do you adapt to, to challenges like that, such as hot surfaces and the fact that the, a lot of the, the parts of the building are very flat? A lot of that is not necessarily just about skill, is it? I mean, in terms of being able to handle temperature, is it just mind over matter? How do you cope with that? Yeah, it's just just mind over matter. And there's also like experience because it's, it's really hard to keep your brain working when you have so much like feelings and, and things that could trigger you, but you really have to stay in that mental state. And I would say this is a part of our character, but it's also through experience. Actually, well, I, I have been climbing for nearly a half century. I have had, you know, many uh, close calls all along my life, but uh, somehow I, I made it and uh, I'm not really changing my mind, you know. It is more like a, like a life path, meaning uh, this is what I did choose when I was uh, when I was young. You know, I was not even a teenager, and uh, at the age of sixty one, I'm still uh, climbing and free soloing. So it's more like a mental state. Now, all the world's eyes are going to be on Dubai for COP28, and this is obviously a very attention-grabbing thing to do. What is the key message that you hope people will take away from your climb when they see the pictures and want to know why you were doing it? I would say it is about overcoming. When you are climbing, you are, you are overcoming uh, plenty of uh, difficulties. When you are fighting about climate change, you also need to overcome 
plenty of uh, major obstacles. This is the way that we can deliver a message. When you are climbing, you are very quickly uh, conscious that if you fall, you die. It's very simple. When we talk about uh, climate change, it seems to be like, oh, it's in a long time, you know, it's not my generation. So you don't really care. And by bringing this uh, message, it allows people to understand that actually, even in uh, as an individual person, we can still do something. In whichever things that we are doing in life, it is possible to behave the right way on climate change. Yeah, we want to say to everyone that, you know, everything is possible if we work to it and put our mind to it. Urban climber Alexis Lando there. And you also heard the voice of Alain Robert, famously known as the French Spider-Man, in conversation with producer Jennifer Crichton. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show. Right, it is time to find out what is going on in the world of sports. I am certainly not qualified to do that. Uh, But our editor, Chris McCarty, has all the latest for you. Well, we start, as we did yesterday, Georgia, with football UEFA Champions League action once more last night. And only really one place to start. That is in Istanbul, where Manchester United not once but twice gave away two goal advantages. They were 2-0 up inside the opening 20 minutes against Galatasaray, Alejandro Garnacho and Bruno Fernandes. Galatasaray then pulled one back. Into the second half we went. Scott McTominay then restored United's two-goal advantage, but yet another goalkeeping howler from Andre Onana. That left the door ajar for Galatasaray, and they duly walked straight in. 3-3 it finished. Manchester United's Champions League hopes no longer in their own hands. They'll need to beat Bayern Munich in match day six. They'll then need to hope that Copenhagen and Galatasaray play out a draw over in the Danish capital if Manchester United are to reach the knockout stages. A catastrophe for a club that fought tooth and nail to get back to the top table of European football this season. It just has not worked out. They conceded four in Munich. They conceded four in Copenhagen. They've conceded three again on the road. Eric Ten Hag's problems mount up next. A trip to Newcastle in the Premier League on Saturday night. Elsewhere, no such problems for Arsenal last night. Six different goal scorers in a 6-0 win over the French side alone. That avenged their 1-0 defeat in the reverse fixture a little earlier this campaign. Arsenal then on course for the knockout stages. Jude Bellingham, he can continue to do no wrong at Real Madrid. A fourth successive Champions League match in which he has scored a 16th goal of the season for the Englishman. What a start to life in the Spanish capital for the young midfielder who really does have the world at his feats. That's the big stories from the world of football. Big night of Europa League action this evening so no rest for the wicked. I'm absolutely knackered but we go on. Europa League action tonight and then this weekend looking a little further into the uh, the, the week and into the weekend. It's all about the Emirates Dubai 7s. A reminder Dubai 103.8 across it all from 10am on Saturday. We'll see you right the way through until 8pm on Sunday. That's your lot Georgia. We'll catch up tomorrow. Chris McCarty making himself tired on a regular basis in order to bring you all the latest sporting headlines. He will be back tomorrow bright and early, but he's also going to be back at 5pm with your drive time show off script. Uh, Make sure you tune in. 
The Agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.